listening to Impact Sports Daily, WDBM's daily rundown of all things sports. Welcome back to another episode of Impact Sports Daily. Today is Thursday, December 2nd. I am your host, Matt Merrifield, joined today with Jacob Phillips, coming at you from the basement here at Holden Hall. A lot of big sports news over the last couple days, basketball, MLB news, football coming up. That's going to be pretty big, so let's get right into it. Starting off, Michigan State basketball took on Louisville last night at home in the Big Ten ACC Challenge. Michigan State came away with the win, came away with a 73-64 win. Four different Spartans got into double figures. The defense looked strong again. What were your thoughts, Jacob? Yeah, I like the look of this Spartans defense this year. Even looking back, the battle for Atlantis, I think that this is a really strong defense that we've been able to see in these past few games, especially you know Marcus Bingham Jr. really being a, a solid core foundation under the basket. So I, I really think the Spartans look good on defense this year. Yeah, definitely. Uh, going into the game last night, it was a matchup between two top 20 teams in adjusted defense, according to the Ken Palm rankings. Michigan State was second, and they showed it again last night, just Louisville could not get any offense going for them. They shot 40% from the field, really struggled from three, shooting only 25%. Michigan State controlled the boards. They did what they a classic Tom Izzo team does, play great defense. And the offense, it, it isn't the flashiest, right? It's not the big-time offense that you see around the country in teams like Purdue, Gonzaga. But you see a just the amount of weapons that this team has, it makes them so much more dangerous than other teams. Yeah, looking at this Michigan State offense, it's actually very hard for those opposing teams to look at them and say, oh, well, they're going to get the ball to, you know, just this one guy of the game. Where Michigan State's got Gabe Brown, Malik Hall, you know, a lot of different offensive weapons, like you said, that really give them a lot of options when it comes to scoring. And I think when they really start getting into it, there are those moments of flash. I think Gabe Brown has had a couple moments in the past few games that have really been those flashier moments. But, you know, I agree that there's just a lot of offensive capabilities for this Michigan State team. Yeah, definitely. Like I said, four players got into double figures last night. Gabe Brown, Max Christie, Jaden Akins, the freshman, had another strong performance. And then Malik Hall led the way in scoring with 15 points. And it was just a strong performance from Malik Hall again. Obviously, he had his breakout game last week in the Battle for Atlantis, dropping 20, I believe it was 25 points, just was on fire, couldn't miss. Struggled against Baylor uh, in the championship game of the Battle for Atlantis, but came out again last night. When he is aggressive and he attacks the basket, he changes the offense of this team. He, he's a just a, a difference maker for them, allows more open shots beyond the arc for other players like Gabe Brown and Max Christie. So I really think when he plays well, he really helps carry the offense. Yeah, and I think with this Michigan State offense, when they start firing on all cylinders, you really start to see that momentum build. And I think that really is helped by their defense. And probably the stat of the night, Michigan State did not turn the ball over more than 20 times. They finished with 19. That's probably the biggest issue with this Michigan State team. Uh, they've turned the, They've had issues all year. It seems like Michigan State always ha- historically has that issue. Last night they kept it under 20, which is probably the benchmark for this team. That's not a good benchmark to have, to be honest. But it's just when the point, for, for whatever reason, just this team just seems to, you know, mental errors, guys stepping on the baseline, guys stepping on the sideline, coming up the floor, just simple mental mistakes that do make a difference. It didn't cost them last night, but 
as we've as we've seen them when they play teams like Kansas or Baylor, it's going to come back to bite them. And if they want to stay in a, in games against those big teams, they're going to have to clean 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 it up. I'm sorry. Yeah, I think it really shows some improvement. And I agree, you know, it really proves that point. If Michigan State can just keep those turnovers under control, that it really shows they can be one of these bigger, better teams that historically they've been in the past getting back maybe a Final Four run, but they really got to keep those turnovers under control. Definitely. I think just the last point for Michigan State is that, I mean, I know you touched on it, the amount of offensive weapons they have. They have so many guys that can come at you and score. They got obviously Marcus Bingham can lead the, has led the team in scoring this year. Gabe Brown has usually been the guy. He's I think he's led the team in scoring for for games most often. Max Christie when he truly he's starting to get acclimated, but when he really gets settled in, he's going to be a huge difference maker for this offense. Uh, Tyson Walker's offense hasn't quite been there, but last night he had ten assists, which is his high uh, season high for him in his time at Michigan State. He didn't turn the ball over. He only had three turnovers last night, so he played really well. Looks like he's starting to get truly adjusted to playing here. Uh, you got Malik Hall had a great game. Jaden Aikens looks like a different player. It looks or looks like he could be a true like he could honestly start or play actual meaningful minutes off the bench. And then obviously AJ Hogard has improved from last year. So just lots of guys that can come at you. There are 10, 11 players deep in their rotation that not a lot of teams have, and I think that. As the season progresses and as they get better, they're going to be a truly dangerous team when it comes time for March. Absolutely. Moving on to another game in the Big Ten ACC Challenge last night. North Carolina played host to Michigan. North Carolina routed Michigan last night 72-51, an impressive performance for the Tar Heels. Michigan just came out flat. I I don't – what what, did you make of the game, Jacob? Yeah, you know, in – North Carolina is not a uh, a bad team. I think, obviously, you know, going and blowing out Michigan by, was it, 21 points, really shows this huge difference in capabilities. I, I think Michigan's just been kind of struggling this year in terms of basketball. They haven't quite hit their stride. Yeah, definitely. Uh, obviously, the expectations were high this year. They had a very strong showing last year. Juwan Howard in his first two years at Michigan – had two, I think his first year, they struggled a little bit, but they were definitely a tournament team. They're going to be a six, seven seed in his first year. Last year, they were obviously a top seed in the tournament, and they made it to the Sweet 16. They had a strong showing. Many expect them to continue that in this year. They they had the number one recruiting class coming into the season. I think that hurt them more than it helped them from the standpoint that it's tough to play with freshmen in college basketball, uh, especially early in the season. These are 18, 19-year-old kids that have to come in and play against for sometimes 22, 23-year-olds now that some teams get the extra year of eligibility. So that's really tough on these young teams to go out there and perform early. I mean, Michigan's lost. They're 4-3 and three to start the year. They've lost to some good teams. Seton Hall, they lost close. It's very good. They lost to an Arizona team last week that is very underrated. And obviously going to Chapel Hill is no easy feat to do. So obviously that's, they've had a little bit of a rough start. I think they will solve their issues. They just there's just they need to find that leadership that I think they lack, but I think they're gonna need guys like Hunter Dickinson and Eli Brooks to truly step up and take over and just establish a culture for the young guys so that way they can truly progress and, you know, find a better way later in the season. Yeah, I think for Michigan it's all about finding that mesh together with all those new players that came in. You know, you got a lot of talent coming in, but also a lot of inexperience and it's all just about kind of forming that singular team identity to be able to kickstart 
what can really be this powerful team over the next few years. Yeah, definitely. I think that Michigan, another big issue for them has just been, I think their, th- their three-point shooting just hasn't been there. I think that's something that they kind of rely on, but it just they ha- the shots haven't been going, and that's just something that happens in college basketball that will turn around. So I have no doubt, although it's been a, slow, sl- a sluggish start for the Wolverines, that come time for January, they'll have plenty of uh, plenty of opportunity to bounce back. And I think the Big Ten is wide open this year after Purdue. Uh, the second-best team in the Big Ten is probably Michigan State, but I think Ohio State's still very good, although they have had a rough start. They just beat Duke, the number one team in the country, Tuesday night, so that was a big win for them. You have Michigan, that's still a very strong team. Illinois is still a solid team. So there's a lot of there's a lot of good teams in the Big Ten. It's just we're going to have to find out who the top teams are. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think this year the Big Ten this is kind of a an evening out year where you see a lot of these teams more evenly matched than you have in the past few years. And it'll be really interesting to watch as we get closer to the tournament and seeing how these teams can kind of sneak out ahead of each other. Yeah, definitely. The Big Ten this year, there's only, I think, one team that's truly dominant above the rest, and that's Purdue. After that, there aren't many bad teams in the Big Ten. There's a lot of solid, very good teams. So conference play should be very exciting this year, a lot more upsets. And uh, even although the Big Ten may not seem as strong as in years past, they still won the ACC Big Ten Challenge. They were went 8-6. and six. So they win it for the third consecutive year. The ACC has not looked very good the last couple of years in college basketball, which is surprising to see. But we'll just have to wait and see. I'm excited for the rest of the college basketball season. Last year, you had the two best teams in the country in Baylor and Gonzaga. They obviously went on to play in the national title game. Everywhere, everybody else, especially you saw it in March, upsets were everywhere. And I think that parity in college basketball has increased again this year. There, are, I think there. Are, I don't think there's a single team in college basketball this year that's unbeatable. And I think that's going to make for an exciting rest of the regular season as we go through December, then into conference play, and then once we get to March. I mean, I'm not going to say a 16 seed is going to be a one seed, but I think this is one of those years where they're the one seeds don't seem as unbeatable as they have in the past. So I think that the parity in college basketball will just make this another exciting season, especially after the great season we had last year. Oh, I mean, without question, I think this is going to be one of the most interesting and exciting seasons to watch for almost any team at this point. And I think that as we get closer, it's only going to get more interesting in terms of upsets that you see before the tournament, in the tournament even. So it it only gets more exciting from here. Yes, definitely. For Michigan State, they continue their non-conference play this weekend. They play Saturday against Toledo at home. And then next week, they start the beginning of their conference play the big 10 likes to do the two set uh the double header of conference games in the middle of december so they play minnesota and penn state next week before they go into the christmas break and finish up their non-conference moving on into major league baseball news the lockout has officially started last night the cba that had been in place for the last five years officially expired and there was no agreement to replace it there's a lot of question marks on when an agreement will be made between the teams. So as of right now, no free agents can sign. And they're, until they're, they're, a CBA is agreed upon, spring training can't start. So what, is, what do you think will come of, this, of come of this, Jacob? Yeah, I don't know. This just Right now, you know, this just broke within the past day. And I think that you know, right now it's just kind of a holding pattern. I, I think uh, it was reported negotiations stopped after only, I think it was seven minutes. 
Uh, so I think neither side is really willing to budge on their position here. And I think it really, we're, we're not going to see a, a breakthrough decision on this anytime soon. That's for sure. Yeah. The biggest issue from what I've gathered from, I believe Jeff Passan was talking on sports center last night is that the players over the last, over since the last CBA was agreed upon, MLB revenue has continued to grow like you'd expect, but player salary has not increased with it. So player salary, average player salary, has stayed stagnant. Although the league is making more money, so that's and that's usually the disagreement that comes in CBAs for all these sports leagues. I've saw it with the NFL a couple of years ago. Players want to make more money, especially if the league makes more money, which is understandable. And that's the disagreement that's coming right now. I partly think that's because there is no salary cap in baseball and other sports. When you have a salary cap, most teams are going to spend what they have. Some do, some don't. So that as the salary cap increases with each CBA, player contracts increase. Major League Baseball, there's no salary cap, so owners just pay what they want to pay for players. And I think that's why you don't see the increase in salary like you do in other sports. Yeah, and I think not having a you know a, a salary cap really, I mean that, that's really different for major like major league sports, you know, the NFL's got one, the uh, NBA has their own, NHL has it. So I think it's really interesting that, you know, it, it, you kind of have seen it in the past where not having a salary cap really proves to be this major disparity among teams that can afford to pay better coaches, better players, and teams that can't. But, uh, you know, I think that it would be interesting to see it, the MLB implement a salary cap Will that actually happen with this lockout? I don't think so. And other changes that are being discussed with the CBA, owners want an expanded playoff. I believe they want to go to 14 teams in total, so seven on each side. I think that they – I believe that they want to implement the uh, universal DH. There's a couple – there's a bunch of rules that they want to implement. Uh, So it's definitely be interesting to see how the game changes in certain ways after the CBA becomes agreed upon. I think another big thing that – Comes to this, like I mentioned, free agents cannot sign with teams until the CBA is agreed upon, which is so you got big name players. Trevor Story is still a free agent. Carlos Correa is still a free agent. He's probably the name in this free agent class. You have Freddie, I, I, no, I didn't say Freddie. Freddie Freeman is a free agent. So you have these three big name and other big name players that haven't signed yet and can't do so. And if the, if the CBA doesn't get agreed upon until March 1st and you're trying to start a season April 1st, these guys are going to have to sign quickly get to spring training. So I definitely think there's going to be a backup. And for teams like the Tigers, obviously going out and sign, sign a player like Javier Baez, part of me thinks they did that because they wanted to make sure they had their team in place going into spring training whenever it starts. So I definitely think that the CBA played a big role in the free agency period that we're having. Oh, absolutely. I think that you'll see teams that weren't able to sign free agents before this are going to be really at a disadvantage come training time. Yeah, definitely. Another thing I thought was interesting by Major League Baseball, if you go on the Major League Baseball app and you look at team rosters, all the players' pick profile pictures have been taken off. So I just think it was some a small detail, but I thought it was interesting how there is, I mean, the Players Union and Major League Baseball are completely separated right now. And right as of right now, there's no end in sight. I think the target date is to hopefully have it done by March 1st. That way spring training can start on time. But I personally don't think it will because I just the owners and players never seem to budge, and usually it's the players that end up having to because they're the ones that need to make the money. But we'll have to wait and see. In NFL football tonight, Thursday night football, 
The Cowboys traveled to New Orleans to take on the Saints. Both teams took a loss last week, Thursday, on Thanksgiving. Now get an opportunity. Kind of an interesting, they get a week off after playing Thanksgiving, play on back-to-back Thursdays. Jacob, what do you expect to see in tonight's game? You know, with, with everything that's been going on with the Cowboys in the past week, and, you know, the Saints obviously are on a, I think it's a four-game losing streak. I think both teams are shaping this up to be a must-win game. So I know the spread's set at, I think it's five points in favor of Dallas, but, you know, this is really anyone's game at this point. You are going to have two teams that really need to win, and the Cowboys are going to go into hostile territory. Mercedes-Benz Stadium is historically one of the worst stadiums to play the Saints in. It's a massive home field advantage for them. Yeah, both teams need this win for the Saints. They've lost four in a row, like you've or, yeah four in a row, like you've said. Didn't win a single game in November. Now they have to. I mean, the wild card race in the NFC is super tight. A lot of teams that really haven't stepped up to take over the final spot or even the final two spots for that matter. And the Saints were right there. They looked like they had control of it and could even compete with the Buccaneers for the for the NFC South division title. But that they've clearly fallen off. They're still 5-6. and six. They're still tied with the Vikings, Falcons, and F- Washington football team for the final spot. So this is one at home. You'd like to see your team pull it out and come up with a big win. And for the Cowboys, they've really hit some hard times here. They've now lost two in a row. They lost to the Chiefs, lost to the Raiders last week at home. If you lose this one, I mean, Washington's only two games out, and they still play Washington twice later in the year so I definitely think that this one if you don't come out with one you're really putting yourself in harm's way come the final stretch of the season yeah and I think Washington's one of those teams that in the past few weeks has been able to kind of step up with that since that upset against Tampa Bay I know they just upset Seattle it's they're one of those teams that if you're looking at the NFC East looks much more dangerous now than they did a month or two ago yeah definitely the uh I mean month and a half ago you said Cowboys were running away at the division everybody else is going to finish with five, six wins, and just like that. I mean, even the Eagles are still kind of in it. I don't think they'll be able to take the division, but I definitely think Washington, with the level their defense can play at and the way their offense is starting to get going with Taylor Heineke, I I think they have a real shot of taking the division from Dallas. Uh, what's your prediction for tonight's game, Jacob? I think the Saints pull it off by, you know, maybe a field goal, so maybe three, maybe a touchdown, seven. Uh, I, I think they just have that massive home field advantage. And coming off a four-game losing streak, um, I think part of it also comes down to whether or not Alvin Kamara is going to finally play again. That's been one of the biggest issues that they had in November. But I think with all the issues the Cowboys are facing, I think the Saints really have a chance to pull this one out from under the Cowboys. I think as of right now, as of an hour ago, Alvin Kamara is expected to sit out again this week on Thursday Night Football, so I definitely think that makes a big difference. I think either way, it's going to be a lower-scoring game, and I think that it's going to be a touchdown, less than a touchdown either way. I'm I'm going to go with the Cowboys in this one. I think Kamara being out is going to make a big difference, and I just think, I mean, you look at the position group's quarterback play, Dallas is clearly better. Taysom Hill is starting at quarterback for the Saints, so that should be interesting to see. You have Dak Prescott's a better quarterback. Zeke is better than... Mark Ingram, who is most likely going to be the starting back receiver. So offensively and even on the defensive side of the ball, Dallas is still very solid. So I think Dallas will pull this one out on Thursday Night Football. And this will move us into our final segment of the of the show, a little bit of NFL underreaction, overreaction, based on the last week of football that we just got. First question, 
is Bill Bel or underreaction or overreaction, Jacob. Bill Belichick is already the lock of the year for NFL Coach of the Year. Ooh, that is a tough question. I'm gonna have to go with. I don't know. It's it's not an overreaction, that's for sure. So I guess I would have to go with underreaction. You know, I think what he's been able to do with Mac Jones in the past month or two, really kind of pulling away in that division. I, I mean, I'd kind of have to agree that he's been able to turn that team around for sure ever since they dropped Cam Newton. I would have to say it's an overreaction from the standpoint that I think uh, Zach Taylor in Cincinnati is going to be a very compelling argument to win it. Obviously, doing what he's done, they're seven and four. They have a shot at the division title, and I think in the NFC side. The Cardinals, Cliff Kingsbury's got to be in consideration. Matt LaFleur's got to be in consideration. They both had strong seasons there. So I definitely think Belichick should win it. As of right now, obviously, he's turned around the Patriots in a year right after losing Brady to come back, and now they might be the best team in the AFC. So I definitely think he should win it, but I don't think he's a lock quite yet. Not yet at this point in the season. Yeah, I think what it really comes down to is who's the most solid team in the AFC. Because we've seen a lot of teams show a a lot of promise, but then they get upset. They start going on a couple losing streaks. So, but I think Bill Belichick and the Patriots have started to go on a winning streak and really have shown that they're they have a solid uh, schedule ahead of them. Like the they just they're not showing any kind of wavering. I think that's what it will come down to. Next storyline: overreaction or underreaction? The Cowboys are a lock to win the NFC East. We kind of already talked about this, but I want your thoughts on whether or not they can win the East. Uh, I Well, I think it's a complete overreaction that they're a lock. You know, we already talked about this. I think that the Cowboys have kind of struggled to kind of keep that division under their control. I came into this season thinking they were a lock. They've proved me wrong in thinking that. I think Washington has started to show they've got some promise. I think the Eagles have also done really well. And I think the Giants still aren't really out of that race yet either. So... I, I don't think anyone's a lock for that division. I, I would agree with you that it is an overreaction. I don't think the Cowboys are a lock yet. Uh, if you look at the schedule, the last four weeks of the season, the NFC East just plays each other. Dallas still has to play Washington twice. I believe they play Philly twice. Let me look. Um, hold on. The I mean, they just they all they're going to all play each other, and it all even itself out here at the end. Yeah, Washington's schedule or Dallas' schedule this week. They play the Saints. Obviously, we just talked about. They then go to Washington, go to New York to play the Giants. They host Washington again. They go, they host Arizona, and then they play at Philly. So obviously they play three, four, five division games, four division games here in the last six weeks. So it's going to be a tough stretch for them. I think Washington is the team to beat them if it's somebody will do it. I don't think Philly or New York can keep up with the Cowboys. But coming into the year, I thought honestly, I thought that Washington would win the division. I thought their defense would carry over. And then that the offense would still keep up with Taylor Heineke. It didn't at the start. They're starting to pick it up now, even with Chase Young being out. So I think it's an overreaction. I think the Cowboys still probably will win the division. But I think the Cowboys or the, the Washington football team will keep it close and will still find a way to get a wild card spot. The next storyline, the Rams could miss the playoffs. Underreaction. I think in the past few weeks, you've seen the Rams kind of struggle. I know everyone thought Matt Stafford was going to be this saving grace that brings the Rams to a Super Bowl run. But if you look at the stats, you know, uh, last year with Jared Goff, they had the same exact, you know, number of wins and losses that Matt Stafford has at this point. 
So I I really think, you know, they they do have that chance to miss the playoffs with how good, you know, Washington looks, with how good the Buccaneers still look, Arizona, of course, Green Bay. I think that the Rams are really going to have to pick it up and sort out a lot of the issues you've seen come to light in the past couple weeks. Uh, I would say that's an overreaction. I don't think they can win the division. I just don't think how they can make up the two games against Arizona, even though they do play them again next weekend. But that team is too good to miss the playoffs, I think. I know they've struggled. They've lost three in a row. But they played the Titans. They played the Niners. And they played the Packers. Those are three very good football teams. This week, they play the Jaguars. If you lose this week, then you press the panic button. At home, you should beat the Jaguars. No reason for them not to win. After that, they play at Arizona, but then they get the Seahawks at home. They very much should win that football game. Vikings on the road. That's one you got to win. So I think I see they're going to win 10 football games. They do have a tough stretch, tough stretch down to finish the season, but they have a couple winnable games that you get to 10 wins and you're in the playoffs, I think, in the NFC. So I don't think it's – I think it's an overreaction. I think the Rams are definitely still safe and will make the playoffs. They lose this week, different conversation, but right now I think they're still safe. Now, next storyline, the Ravens are the best team in the AFC. Ooh, that's that's a tough one because with how they played against the Browns, I don't want to say that they are. I think that the Patriots have proven to be more solid in the past few weeks, but I think Baltimore as a whole has a little bit more potential. They just, I mean, with how they, that that Cleveland game was an ugly game to say the least. It was interception after interception, fumble after fumble, and it was just really upsetting to watch. A lot of mistakes made. So I, I, I do not think that the Ravens are the best team in the AFC right now. My issue with the Ravens, like I think last weekend, obviously the Browns game was rough to watch, but that defense showed up and they still played really well. So although Lamar went out and threw four picks, they still got to win. Most teams, if their quarterback goes out and plays – like that and throws four interceptions, you're not winning a game. So I thought that was impressive that their defense could step up. My issue with the Ravens is that when they don't show up to games, it looks really bad. Obviously, the the Bengals game is the one everybody thinks of. The Dolphins game on Thursday Night Football, they didn't show up. So when they show up to play, they are a very good football team. Lamar is a really good quarterback. That defense is tough to beat. I'd have – it's so tough. I don't think there's a clear best team in the AFC yet. But if I had to pick one, I would still pick the Ravens. So I guess it's an underreaction for me. I would still say that they are the team in the AFC, but it's very tight. And, I mean, we still got four weeks left in the season, five weeks left in the season, so we'll just have to wait and see. But as of right now, I would say they are the best team in the AFC. Yeah, I think that part of the problem is that you really didn't see the Patriots start to prove their worth until these past couple weeks. Yeah, my issue with the Patriots is that they played, obviously they beat a good team in Tennessee last weekend, but it was at home. I'd like to see Mac Jones go on the road and go out and beat a very good team this week, uh, beat a very good team. He has that opportunity Monday Night Football. They're at the Bills for the division lead. That's, that's the game. If the, if the Patriots show up, then you really have to reconsider, but we'll have to wait and see. Final storyline, the Buccaneers are at their best when they don't need Tom Brady to win the game. Hmm. That is an interesting question. Like, I'm I'm just kind of confused, like what it means when they don't need him to win it. Like, I think what they mean is when they are able to just go out and run the football. They're at their best when they don't need to throw the ball 50 times a game. I think that's what they mean. They don't have to rely on Tom Brady to throw the football. 
yeah, I'm not quite sure how I feel about that statement. That, like, just with, with how the Buccaneers offense kind of shapes out, I know they've had receiver issues. I know Antonio Brown, I think, is still out. And I think it's not fair to really put that on Tom Brady as his fault. So I think part of it is that, you know, you've just, you've, you have a pass-based offense with a pass-based quarterback, but you're starting to limit his weapons now. And I think it really – I think that's the bigger issue. I don't think it's really a Tom Brady issue. I, I would actually have to agree with the statement. I do think it's an underreaction because if you look at the games where they've struggled – all right, let's go opening weekend against the Cowboys. Their leading rusher had 33 yards – or, sorry, had 32 yards. When they lost to the Rams, their leading rusher was Tom Brady. Their leading rusher was Tom Brady in a football game. That's an issue. Uh, when they lost to the when they, the Patriots game, they didn't run for 100 yards. In the Saints loss, Giovanni Bernard led with 30 rush 30 yards on two attempts. They threw the ball 40 times that game. So I think that they just they when they don't run the ball well and they have to make Tom Brady throw, they are not very good. And I would just, so I would say it's an understatement or underreaction that when Tom Brady needs to go out and win the game for the Buccaneers, they are not very they are not as good. Yeah, I'd have to say the Buccaneers are not as good when you need Tom Brady to throw under pressure. I think that is clear. I think in that I think that's what it came down to in Washington. I mean, Tom Brady is a very, you know, sits back in the pocket, very stable quarterback. He's going to take his time. And like you said, when he is the leading rusher, I mean, you have you've forced him to scramble out of the pocket and actually rush and lead the team in rushing yards, and that's a huge problem for him. Because he he is not the type type of quarterback. He's not mobile. He he very much just wants to stand back right. and take his time. He's 40, 45 years old or whatever. So obviously you don't want your your quarterback running <laughs> and taking one hit and he's gonna be done forever. But uh, yeah, I just think that. And if you look back to last year's playoffs, obviously playoff Lenny. Everybody remembers Leonard Fournette's great playoff run he had last year, where every game he was just carrying the offense. And I think that's the biggest thing is that. If had he not had the performances he had last year, had they not been able to run the ball as effectively, I don't think they win. They don't even come close to the Super Bowl. So I definitely think that when they are running the ball well and they don't have to rely on Brady as much, they are a much better team. So that's going to do it for us here at Impact Sports Daily on Thursday, December 2nd. I am your host, Matt Merrifield. I was joined today with Jacob Phillips, and I hope you you guys have a great rest of your day. You've been listening to Impact Sports Daily. Our thanks to Impact's General Manager Jeremy Whiting, Station Manager Amber Kinetsky, and Programming Director McKenna Lowndes. For more, visit impact89fm.org sports.